0: This audio is brought to you by MuslimCentral.com. People can't hear at the back. Oh, where is our friend Jamal? Is someone there to do the uh, the recording for the ladies at the back, brother? Can you find our brother Jamal to do the recording for the ladies? Allahu Akbar. Can you find out if the ladies are, can see us? Okay, we'll finish the chronology and then we'll go into conquest of Makkah. The Prophet ﷺ at 43 years old, three years before his prophethood, third year of his prophethood now. The beginning of the public preaching happens at Mount Safar. The Prophet changes from being a prophet to a messenger of Allah. A prophet is somebody who calls his people and they accept him. A messenger is someone who calls his people and they reject him. Serious opposition begins. Bilal converts and is tortured. Seven years before Hijrah, the Prophet is 45 years old, the fifth year of prophethood. The first and second immigration to Abyssinia happens. 80 companions including Prophet's daughter Ruqayya and her husband Uthman ibn Affan led by Ja'far ibn Abi Talib and also Saudah radiyallahu anha who later on becomes Prophet's wife. They all migrate. The Prophet ﷺ starts suffering continuous torture and abuse by Quraysh people. Six years before the hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ is 46 years old, the sixth year of Prophethood. Hamza anh, becomes Muslim. Umar ibn Khattab becomes Muslim. Fifth year before the Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ is 47 years old, the seventh year of prophethood. The Meccans boycott the Hishamites, they boycott him for three years. Three years before the Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ is 49 years old. It's called the Year of Sorrow, the ninth year of prophethood. Abu Talib dies, his uncle. Khadija dies, his wife, only a few weeks after him. The Prophet ﷺ and companions become politically isolated. Persecution increases. The Prophet ﷺ goes to a ta'if. Over there, he gets persecuted. Surat Yusuf is revealed to comfort the Prophet. ﷺ. Two years before the hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ is 50 years old, 10th year of prophethood. The night journey, Isra'ul Maraj, happens. And the Prophet ﷺ marries his second wife, Saudah ibn Ta'nuz bint in Ramadan. That happens when the Prophet ﷺ was 50 years old. And she was much older than him. The first one year before Hijrah, the Prophet is 51 years old. Eleventh year of prophethood. The first treaty of Aqaba, people from Aus and Khazraj come to tell him, We'll follow you, come to Medina. They swear oath not to associate any god with Allah. They didn't swear oath not to steal, not to engage themselves in adultery, not to kill their own children, not to accuse one another. And they would obey the Holy Prophet, performing any good but no jihad, because jihad had not yet been pronounced or commanded. Now the Medina period, 622, two or three months before hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ is 52 years old, the 12th year of prophethood. The second pledge of allegiance, Aqaba, happens. The Prophet ﷺ orders companions to emigrate to Yathrib. It's still called Yathrib. It took them two months for the Muslims to emigrate to Medina. The Prophet ﷺ is 52 years old. Give one or two weeks. On Friday the 16th of July, 622, the first day of Muharram, the Prophet migrated from Mecca to Medina. This is called the Hijrah. Umar ibn Khattar Anhu established the Islamic calendar during his Khilafah in 638, 17AH. There was no Islamic calendar until Umar ibn Khattab did it. And the constitution of Medina, which is called Dustur al-Medina, also known as the Charter of Medina, was put into place. The terms were freedom of religious belief and practices for all citizens of Medina. Medina becomes a haram, sacred place, where no blood of peoples, including anybody who is in it, can be spilt. Non-Muslim members will have the same political and cultural rights as Muslims. Non-Muslim members will all have autonomy and freedom of religion. Non-Muslims will not be obliged to take part in religious war against, war with the Muslims. Yani they don't have to fight with the Muslims against enemies. And the signatories to all of this were Aus, Khazraj and the citizens of Medina, including the Jews around Medina. Yathrib is officially named Medina. 623, the first and second year are of Hijrah. The Prophet is 53 years old, 13th year of prophethood. He marries Aisha radiallahu anha, who is approximately nine years old and becomes the third wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He consummates the marriage contract. And the Qibla is changed from Jerusalem to Mecca. That was when in the 13th year of prophethood, the first to second year of hijrah. The Prophet sallallahu was 53 years old. 17th Ramadan, second year of Hijra, the Prophet ﷺ is 54 years old, the 14th year of prophethood. The Prophet ﷺ engages in the Battle of Badr. The Badr fighters are given a formal status of honor and faith above everyone. And the Prophet ﷺ marries Hafsa bint Umar عنها, at the age of 36 years old. She's 36, approximately. On the 12th month of the second of Hijrah. On the third year Hijrah in Shawwal, the seventh, Prophet is 55 years old, 15th year of Prophethood. The battle of Uhud happens and the Prophet marries Zainab bint Khuzayma who is 27 years old and she's also called Ummul Masakeen, the mother of the poor people. The fourth year of Hijrah, the Prophet Sallallahu is 56 years old. Sixteenth year of Prophethood. Banu Nadir, the Jews, they break the treaty by attempting to assassinate the Prophet Sallallahu and abusing the Muslims. Banu Nadir, the Jews, are evacuated to Khaybar. And the Prophet ﷺ marries Ummu Salama bintu Abu Umayyah. She's 26 years old. In Shawwal, 10th month. Fifth year of Hijrah, Dhul Qiada, the Prophet ﷺ is 57 years old. 17th year of prophethood, the battle of Khandaq happens. Banu Quraiza, the Jews of Medina, are charged with treason. And its men are put to death by an elected judge whom they choose by the name of Sa'd ibn Mu'adh. Now, I want to make a little point on that, which I did not make last time. Remember how I told you the Prophet put the men of Banu Quraiza to death, the Jews? Remember that, that famous story? Do you remember or not? You guys need to bring notepads, you need to write stuff. How are you gonna know the seerah like this and learn? Brothers and sisters, I don't mean to put you down. Bani Qurayza is a very famous story which the non-Muslims who wanna attack Islam, they will use this against us. They use the story of Aish, they use the story of this where Prophet Sallallahu killed all the Jews and they call it anti-Semitic and all that stuff. Now this story, look back, I, I gave it in the seerah lesson, I don't know, something before. And the Prophet ﷺ, is said to have killed the men for treason. Now, not all scholars actually agree on that event. Not all the scholars agree that the Prophet ﷺ actually put these men to death. For example, Imam Malik anhu, alayhi, and Ibn Hajar al great scholars, they rejected this story and they questioned it and they said, such odd tales as the story of Qurayza and Al-Nadir are deviant tales. Another example, Abu Rahman al-Awza'i, another great scholar, he said, As far as I know, it is not a decree of God that God should chastise the many for the fault of the few. Rather, He reprimand the few for the fault of the many. So some scholars, actually, a lot of scholars, don't even believe that that event happened. But anyway, if it did, it's justified. We talked about it. And if it didn't, it's justified, inshaAllah. Inshallah. We move on to the sixth year of Hijrah. The Prophet ﷺ is 58 years old. The battle of Banu al happens. And the Prophet ﷺ marries two women in that same year. Their names are Juwayriya bint harith She was 21 years old. And then he marries Zainab bint al She was 37 years old. And then the first Umrah attempt happens by a dream that the Prophet ﷺ sees in al months, 11th month. And then the Hudaybiyah Treaty happens, which means 10 years of peace for the Muslims. Seventh year Hijrah, the Prophet ﷺ is 59 years old. It's the beginning of the year. The Meccans realize the term. The Meccans realize that the term arrests Meccan converts. Remember how some, someone converts to Islam? They have to go from Mecca to the Prophet Sallallahu and then they said, no we're gonna keep them. So they realize that that's not working for them because it worked against them, so they remove that clause. So then more people start to embrace Islam, more people start going to Medina. Amr ibn al-'As, a great companion, becomes a Muslim. The Prophet ﷺ marries Umm Habiba bint Abu Sufyan, her name is also Ramla. She's 52 years old and she was a divorced and single mother, daughter of Habiba. The Prophet's closest relative and his uncle's daughter, his paternal uncle's daughter. He married her. The battle of Khaybar happened. Then Rosa marries another wife, Safiya bint Huyeyi, aged 20 years old. Then Khalid ibn Walid converts. Then the battle of Mu'tah happens against the Byzantines, the Romans. Then Amr ibn al-As's battle with another people called Dhatu Salasir. Seventh and eighth year Hijrah. the Prophet is 59 to 60 years old now. He does his first Umrah ever on the 4th of the qadah in the 7th year of Hijrah. And he marries another woman named Maimuna bintul Harith straight after Umrah, and she becomes his last wife. Maimuna bintul Harith is the last woman the Prophet ﷺ married. The Meccans violate the peace treaty approximately two years after that, like in the 7th or 8th year. And so in the eighth year of Hijrah in Ramadan, the Prophet ﷺ is sixty point five years old. Sixty years and a half. And the conquest of Mecca happens. This is what we reached. The conquest of Mecca. The Prophet ﷺ is sixty years old and a half. He's married his last wife, Maimuna. And it's the eighth hijra in Ramadan. The Prophet. He is now going to do the conquest of Makkah. Now, I'm going to give you a brief rundown of his wives. Because a lot of you are listening and thinking, wife, wife, wife here, wife there, what's going on? So I'm going to give you a brief rundown, inshallah, the Prophet wasallam's <laughs> wives. Uh, people who are on social media, on Facebook, I've got a new camera, I'm trialing it out. I know it's zooming in and zooming out. So we'll try it out, give me your um, opinion later on, and we'll work on it, inshallah. Chronological order of the Prophet wives. You ready for it? Or have I lost you? It's your fault. You don't get, you don't get notes to write on. And then you don't, you go on Facebook or you know once. So you have got to go to go on there and write the information, memorise them, and then tell your family, tell your parents, tell your friends. You can't memorise something once. You're lucky if you get out of here with two percent of this. <laughs> <laughs> Alhamdulillah, I'm worse than you, brothers. It took me weeks and weeks to learn this. So here is the chronological order, and boy, was it difficult for me to put this into the most authentic and correct way I can. I struggled with this, my brothers, for many hours. Maybe for you it will take weeks, I don't know, because I have some background knowledge, but I don't think I'll, if I was in your place, it will take me weeks to do this. So here it goes, and I hope, are up. I got it right. His first wife is Khadijah bint Khuwaylid, anha everybody knows her she is and I'm going to mention if they were married or widowed or uh, divorcees or whatever okay so Khadija bint Anha. she before the Prophet married her she is widowed twice she is older than the Prophet and she dies in the lifetime of the Prophet after being with him for 25 years 25 years marriage she dies when the Prophet ﷺ was only about 49 uh, years old. His second wife, Sauda bintu Zam'a, her age is unknown, but she was older than the Prophet. ﷺ. He married her two years before the Hijrah in the 10th year of prophethood. So, one year after the death of Khadija radiallahu anha, the Prophet grieved for one year before he married his second wife. He was fifty years old. Sauda was a widow. So he married a second widow now. She was tall, but she wasn't the best looking. This means that the Prophet set the trend for people to look for the value and character of their, of wives or husbands before the looks. Although the looks are important, the values are more important. And he set the trend for people to marry widows and divorcees. Then the third wife is Aisha anha. She was nine years old according to Bukhari. He married her in the beginning of the second year. Sorry, in the beginning of the first year of Hijrah in Medina. But he had engaged, got engaged to her before in in Mecca. He was 51 to 52 years old. And she was the only virgin. And keep in mind, she was engaged to two men before the Prophet ﷺ even asked for her. Can you imagine that? She was 9 years old. And before that she was even engaged to two men before him. Abu Bakr offered her to the Prophet and they loved each other. And the Prophet actually died in her arms. I want to take three minutes or so to explain Aisha radiAllahu anha's story. The majority of scholars agree that Aisha was about nine years old when the Prophet married her. The question is that today, in the 21st century, we find this extremely absurd. How could a 51-year-old man marry a 9-year-old girl? The question in our time is wrong. We have no right to ask this question now, 1,400 years later. Why? Number one, it is not a religious ruling that people are allowed to marry someone men are male, to marry girls that young it's not a religious ruling yes it is not haram in those days but here's what I'm going to say Aisha was not the only girl that got married at that age in not only in Arabia in the entire world in those days and for hundreds of years before it really is weird that people come up when they question the marriage of Aisha immediately you should know that these people are not educated on the history of humanity the people who are educated in humanity, they're called um, anthropologists you ask them, they're the ones who study life and people all the way back to what they call the cave ages they don't question this because they know that ever since the dawn of man Marriages to people of very different ages, especially even 9 years old, or 11 years old, or, eight or, or 10 years old, was actually a practice that the whole world had no problem with. And these girls were not abused, except unless they didn't fear God by other people. Then they lived very happily with their husbands, and the other way around, sometimes young boys. So long as they've all reached puberty, and so long as the girl is menstruating, and the boy is able to get married, that's how the world worked as soon as the girl menstruated and the boy reached puberty, they married. It was a very, very normal custom everywhere in the world. The Romans did it, the Persians did it, the Arabs, the Christians, the Jews, everybody did it. And my evidence to this is that you can read any history book in the world, anyone, Muslim, non-Muslim, any book, anyone, grab a history book about the world before our 21st century, and you will never see anyone question the marriage of the Prophet ﷺ to Aisha. No one. No one. Why? Because it was never a problem. It was never abusive. It was nothing. And Aisha, radiallahu anha, if she was abused, she would not be a scholar of Islam. She would not love the Prophet. ﷺ. Abu Bakrdan would not give her to him. She would not. You know, the Prophet ﷺ wouldn't die on her, in her arms. She was a very healthy and very smart and intelligent young woman. Add to that, the enemies of Islam, they were finding any excuse to say that the Prophet ﷺ is a bad man. They used everything, but they never used his marriage to Aisha. Which tells us that either, either, one, one of two things have happened. Either we've got it wrong, that even in Bukhari it's wrong that she wasn't nine. Or she was she was probably older or that it was a very normal thing and that Aisha عنها, although she was nine years old she had the body of a woman, a grown woman and when you look at her you can't tell she's nine because the story she tells it about herself she says I was nine but when anyone else looked at it they didn't know why? people never used to really keep their age these ages of the Prophet that I'm giving you they're educational guesses the historians got but most people didn't know their proper age they used to go by the year of the elephant the year of the birds, the year of whatever, things that happened. So people couldn't know exactly how old they were. Maybe she was nine, maybe she was 12, maybe she was 18, maybe she was, I don't know. But she says she was nine. So when you looked at her, she was a grown woman. Norm. She was well, mature, and everything. That's all that really mattered in those days. As for today, as for today, it would be haram to marry a nine year old unless she is in a place where the customs are very normal and uh, she's grown up and she is a woman and she's mature enough i don't know if that happens today but there is scientific evidence that in very hot places in the world girls reach puberty very quickly you find a 9 or 10 year old she looks like a 16 or 17 year old i mean i'm a teacher and i see grade 6s grade 7s some of them i can't tell the grade 6s and 7s some of them i think they're year 12s it happens and some girls are in year 12 and they look like they're in grade 6 Yeah, Allah swt created people in different ways. So, what is the condition in Islam? If a person is, has reached puberty and a girl is menstruated. Number two, there is no impediment to the marriage. There's nothing physically, psychologically, emotionally that will prevent them from getting married. And this is why the parents come into the picture and see if this is okay. In our days, 18 years old is a common age, even though unfortunately young people still go getting girlfriends and boyfriends by the age of 12. 13, 14, but they're not allowed to get married. But they can get boyfriend and girlfriend, do everything that a married couple does, and if you visit the Mercy Hospital, a lot of 16-year-olds and 15-year-olds get abortions on a monthly basis. Why? Because they have sex before when they are teenagers. So sex is allowed, abortion is allowed, pregnancy is allowed, but marriage is not allowed. It's a contradiction. So, what I'm saying is, the marriage of Aisha is something that was understandable in those days and for many centuries to come but not in our time. So this is absurd. My daughter's 11 and if any, you know, I would, I, would, I would smash his head in if he comes to dare to ask. Well he can ask but I'll tell him she's too small. Is that correct? A lot of you would do that, I hope. Not smash his head in but say no, no, no. Okay so that's Aisha Number four Hafsa bint Umar She was 36 years old Approximately in the 12th month of the second year of Hijra, after the Battle of Badr, her husband died in the Battle of Badr. And so she became a widow. So now there are three widows, of Sallallahu married. The story of her is that Umar, anhu, her father, he offered her to Abu Bakr. Abu Bakr said no. He offered her to Uthman. Uthman said no. He offered her to Ali. Radiallana. He said no. And then the Prophet ﷺ comes along and he asks for her. And Abu Bakr said, and Umar and Uthman uh, and Uthman and Ali they said to Omar, Look, we didn't say no because you're not a good man or your daughter's not a good daughter. We said no because we heard the Prophet ﷺ mentioning her. So we left her for him. And Hafsa was honored to be the wife of the Prophet. ﷺ. Hafsa was short and a little bit stocky. Zainab bint to now, the reason I said short in stock is because sometimes other wives would tease her about that. Aisha radiallahu anhu used to say, she's short. And the Prophet Wasallam would say, you've said a word that is saltier than the ocean, Ya Aisha. So, he used to teach them not to backbite one another. Zainab bint Khuzayma, she was 27 years old. The Prophet Wasallam married her after the battle of Uhud in Ramadan. Which means that we're allowed to get married in Ramadan. i ran advise the younger, younger brothers to get married in Ramadan. I think you'll lose all of your Ramadan. So, leave it till afterwards. Some people say you can't get married on Eid or between the two Eids. That's absurd. You can marry any time or on a Friday. You can marry any time you like, guys. Except when you're in Ihram doing Hajj or Umrah. So Zainab bint Khuzayma, she was a widow. And she died within eight months of the Prophet's (laughs) marriage to her. Some say within three months of her marriage to the Prophet and she was 30 years old when she died. So now there's two women, two wives of Prophet who died and he had to witness their death. For those of you who say, SubhanAllah, I've been through this, I've been through that. Prophet ﷺ was through it all. Then there was six. Number six was Umm Salama bin Abu, Abu, Abu Umayyah. She was 26 years old. Um, her name was Hind. And Umm Salama, uh, in the fourth year of Hijrah, she was a widow and a single mother. She had a daughter by the name of Habiba. And uh, her, father, her husband Abu Salama died in Ethiopia, in Abyssinia. And uh, Negus, the king of Ethiopia, he's the one... Who was the celebrant who married the Prophet ﷺ to Um Salama in his absence? And his absence, Hamdulillah, was there. So she was a widow and a di- she was a uh, sorry a uh, a widow and a single mother. And she said, Ya Rasulullah, I have a daughter. And he said, She is like my daughter too. And this is Um Salama. number seven, Juwayriya bintul Harith. She was 21 years old in the eighth month of Shaban, six hijrah. She was a widow and a prisoner of war. She was a prisoner of war and a widow after the battle of Manal Mustadik, he married her. Zainab bin she was 37 years old. She was divorced. She was divorced uh, from Zayd ibn Haritha because some say she was married to him because of moral duress, like she was forced to marry him somehow. So they got divorced, and Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala is the one that wed Zainab to the Prophet in the Quran. And she used to sometimes use this in a cheeky way with the other wives, saying, uh, Me, Allah married me to the Prophet. So did Aisha. Then there was Ummu Habiba, the daughter of Abu Sufyan. Her name was Ramla. She was 52 years old. And uh, the Prophet, actually, she was the one that Negus married her to the Prophet. ﷺ. I'm sorry, it wasn't Ummu Salam, it was Ummu Habiba. She was divorced and a single mother. I'm sorry, she was the one with the daughter Habiba. And she was the closest relative to the Prophet ﷺ. Then there was Safiya bint Huyei. She was 20 years old in the eighth year of Hijrah after the Battle of Khaybar. Her real name was Zainab and she was a prisoner of war and a widow. And last one, and then there was Safiya bint Huyei. She used to be a Jew and converted to Islam. She was 20 years old and she was very pretty. Uh, she was in the month of 8th Dhul-Hijjah, as I said, that was Safiyyah. Uh, let me repeat, number 9 was Ummu Habiba, 7th year Hijra. Then there was Safiyyah, the ex-Jew, at 20 years old in the 8th year of Hijrah after Khaybar. And she was a prisoner of war and a widow. And the last one was Maymuna bint harith She was 36 years old in the 11th month of 7th Hijrah after the Umrah in Dhul-Qi'dah. After getting out of ihram, the Prophet sallallahu married her. She had Jewish parents and she was divorced, then widowed. So she lived a life when she was divorced to her first husband. And then she married a second husband and she became a widow. And then she married the Prophet sallallahu All of this was to break the stigma of women being both divorced and widowed. This was a taboo in those days. If a woman was divorced and widowed, it was a taboo. Nobody wanted to marry them. So the Prophet sallallahu broke that taboo. Now there was a last woman her name was Mary al-Qittiya the Copt. She wasn't married to the Prophet ﷺ, she remained the concubine and we talked about that last time. And the Prophet ﷺ treated her well and taught the rest of the world how to treat women who were captives of war because the whole world did it and the Prophet ﷺ had to do it in order to be a role model for everyone in the world how to treat them. And then he offered her freedom but she refused. She wanted to remain like that in that relationship with the Prophet ﷺ. My brothers and sisters in Islam that when the Prophet ﷺ died, he had only nine wives. So, all up the eleven wives in his lifetime, nine wives were the ones whom the Prophet ﷺ still had when he died. And they were Aisha, Hafsa, Sauda, Zainab, Umm Salama, Umm Habiba, Maymuna, Juwayriya, Safiya. Who can repeat it? Ooh, what a challenge. He divorced one woman. According to the reliable source, her name was Umayma bint Sharahil, and she said, A'udhu from you. I seek refuge in Allah from you, I don't know why she said that. Prophet said, look, it looks like you don't want to marry me and you sought refuge in Allah, I can't marry you anymore. So he gave her wealth and he gave her a good clothing and he said, return her back to her family. And this shows us that if a woman doesn't want to be in a marriage, the wise thing for a husband to do is to let her go. But after a long time of trying, you know, you don't just give up on your marriage. But if you're if, if khalas, she doesn't want to be in it, she doesn't want to be in it, man. you're not going to be happy, unfortunately. And the Prophet didn't really, you know, do much more than that. Before he got married to her, like consummated the marriage, she wouldn't let him touch him, touch her, and uh, I don't know, it was uh, like maybe making him jealous or something like that. And uh, he said to her, "Look, just go, I'm not going to force you to stay in a marriage you don't want to." My brothers and sisters in Islam, the Prophet marriage to all these women, there's a great wisdom behind it. It is, was in order to help the divorced and the widowed women, especially the widows of the companions of the Prophet who died in the battles of Islam. Sometimes the Prophet had to go to great lengths to persuade these women to marry him, and this provided that women had independence and they had, a, they had choice in who they wanted to marry. Other marriages were done to strengthen bonds between friends and tribes. Some were even done as an act of compassion towards a conquered enemy. Like they would conquer, Muslims would conquer an enemy and there would be women there so the Prophet instead of making them slaves or whatever, he would offer them to marry them. And when you marry someone, I mean this is the leader of the Muslims marrying these women who used to be the enemies, all the companions respected them and suddenly their entire tribe became respected and allies of the Prophet and the Muslims. Uh, such as Juwayria, Zainab uh, bint Huzayma and Safiya bint He was an ex-Jew, Prophet sallallahu married them, to create friendship, kind of a friendship with the Jews and with the other non-Muslims. Now brothers and sisters, we need to put it in context, last thing I want to say. In the society in those times, marrying all these women and in that way were regarded noble and kind. This shows that uh, the current society and culture you live, must be taken into consideration when deciding on a marriage. You can't ignore the society and the culture brothers and sisters because the mindsets and the expectations of a husband or a wife to a marriage in your community are a core reason to make or break your marriage. So you need to understand the type of society. For example, I'll give you an example. If you get married to a very young girl or a very young boy today in our time then the marriage is not going to be harmonious because the society we live in doesn't accept that another example polygamy is halal but it's not a rule it's allowed if you want to do it but in our society and culture today I'm not talking about Saudi I'm talking about here in Australia or in Lebanon or in Syria us you know or I don't know where else where they're not used to polygamy women always marry one man one woman okay they're used to it for hundreds of years some of them in Lebanon for decades it was always like that in australia always like that so polygamy needs to be addressed before you get married to a potential spouse because society and culture because of that they're not used to it you need to address it before you get married to them brothers and sisters especially bro- brothers i mean you get married you want to one get married and you thinking of polygamy one day address that with your spouse with your engagement before you get married to them. It's only fair. Because a lot of them are not used to it. They're, when they get married, they're getting married on the, ex- on the expectation that it's one wife, forever. And you can't blame them because that's how society is. But if you get married in Saudi, and you've raised, you're raised over there, almost every woman who is a native over there is used to it, they, it's already expected. But in other parts of the world, like here or whatever, you need to address this before you get married to them, brothers and sisters. I don't think many shaykhs have addressed this point to a lot of people. I'd like to really pinpoint this matter. Look at the expectations and the culture and society you live in and pre-plan for it. Make it clear before you get married to this person. You have a secret wife, tell her. Like you have a wife and you don't want to tell her, tell her. You have to tell her. Not allowed. Because this is time that you're going to cut in her, in her, from her time and she's expecting all this stuff. Isn't that correct? So, Prophet taught us this way. So, that is all I want to say about this uh, thing. Now, whoa, that drained me. It's people's fault. They come and tell me, we'll, we want the chronological thing. Can you put it in a chronological thing? I, you know, Alhamdulillah, I went to great lengths by the will of Allah. I ask Allah to reward us for that. And I hope, insha'Allah, the people who ask me for that can appreciate it. So. Bismillah, the conquest of Mecca. It happened in which year Hijra? You can tell me. No, after the seventh, the eighth. That's a good guess. You were paying attention. The conquest of Mecca took place in the eighth year of Hijra in Ramadan. We don't know if it's the third. Day of Ramadan or the sixth, but it was in Ramadan, the conquest of Mecca. For those of you who came to last class, you will know how the conquest of Mecca happened. I'll summarize it very quickly in one minute. The Treaty of Kodabiya meant that there was ten years of treaty, peace. Meccans cannot attack the Muslims and the Muslims cannot attack the Meccans. The Meccans have a right to have allies, and the Muslims have a right to have allies. The allies of the Muslims are not allowed to be attacked by the Meccans or their allies. And the allies of the Meccans are not allowed to be attacked by the Muslims or their allies. If you attack an ally of the Meccans, you've broken a treaty. If you attack an ally of the Muslims, you have broken a treaty. It meant you are allowed to invade the other person. Guess who broke the treaty? Two years later after this contract, the Meccans broke the treaty. How? They had an ally that were called Banu Bakr. And Banu Bakr massacred an ally of the Muslims called Banu Khuzaa. Because there was tribal warfare between them. Doing that meant that the treaty is broken. I told you brothers, don't pump into it. I have to fix it. Can Can we fix that please? Okay. Just set it up straight like that. There you are. Thank you. That's the way. Excellent. It's all working still move away a little bit I'm tired and stuff so I'm gonna get angry are your parents here are they here no, I'm not gonna get angry <laughs> brothers and sisters let's move on so the allies of the Meccans broke the treaty with the allies of the Muslims and then one man from the allies of Banu Khuza'a raced to the Prophet in Medina it took him only a few days to go from Mecca all way to Medina and he made a big poem. Poetry was like, it was very emotional. Ya Rasulallah, this is what happened and that's what happened and they attacked us. Even not only did they break the treaty, but also inside of the Haram, we held on to the ropes of the Kaaba, and they still killed us, Ya Rasulallah. And the Meccan leaders, they helped them and they gave them weapons and watched. Ya Rasulallah, we seek you to protect us. You are the messenger of God. And then he stood up, Sallallahu wa Wasallam. He was so angry, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. And this shows us that anger in the right place should be done. Anyone who is in a state of anger where you should be angry and you're not angry, Imam Shafi calls him a donkey. He says, Man ughdiba wa lam فهو wa lam Whoever is in the right place of anger, right place. Where well, you're supposed to be angry. Angry for your aard, for, your for example, for your wife. You're angry for your sister. You're angry for your mother. Someone attacks them. You get up and you defend them. Obviously with wisdom. With wisdom. You don't go and start breaking neighbors and lighting up houses and breaking factories and shops and stuff. No. You don't go nuts like that. It's crazy. You do the right thing. But being angry for the right reason. Continue. Ah, oh, he's bringing me water. Hafizhah ya jamal. Jamal means beauty. Look how beautiful he is, mashallah. He's married. Don't get any ideas, my sister. I was talking about second wife, Jamal, here. In public, you talk about that. I feel sorry for you. I can't protect you. Against his wife. Once a second wife, he said, I'm not going to do it. Bismillah, rahman rahim. Let's move on. The Prophet became angry. He, stood- he said, "You have been given victory." One word. The Prophet kept the matter absolutely secret. He did not let anyone know that he was going to go to Mecca to conquer it. With All right. He didn't even tell his companions. He didn't even tell Abu Bakr. Radiallahu he did not want to tell a single person and he ordered nobody comes into Medina and nobody goes out of Medina without my permission. Everyone, get ready for war. They said, Ya Rasulullah, where are we going? He didn't tell them where, but this is what he did. Because Prophet ﷺ doesn't lie, he doesn't want to make up something, but this is what he did. SubhanAllah, he sent. Abu Qatada radiallahu anhu to Al-Taif taif remember Al-Taif, the Prophet got persecuted there. He sent him to Al-Taif. He said, "Go and find out what those people are doing. Spy for me. Find out what they're doing." So he went there, and Prophet sallallahu alaihi had information that Al-Taif were preparing to attack the Prophet So he went there and came back and Prophet sallallahu said, "Tell me about Al-Taif." And they said, wallah ya Rasulullah, they're still in their lands, but they've sent three of their leaders to Transjordan. Transjordan is where the Romans still had leadership. Like Syria and Jordan, that used to be called Transjordan. And they, he said, why have they gone? He said, they went there to learn how to manufacture, how to build towers that they hunt, that they um, attack castles with, and how to make catapults. He said, why are they learning that? He said, Ya law. they told me that they're going to learn it because they're going to manufacture it, to use it against you. Against you. So that means Attaif Ta'if was preparing for war against the Prophet. ﷺ. That was perfect. The Prophet ﷺ said, Let's prepare ourselves. We're going to Al Ta'if. Al Ta'if were called uh, Banu Makhzum. So, Al Khuza'a, I'm sorry. He prepared the army, he got up, and he marched. 7,500 soldiers went towards Al Ta'if. On their way, They had allies, Arabs that had just embraced Islam. And some of them were coming out to embrace Islam with their soldiers and their men. A thousand came up from a tribe called Banu Sulaim. Banu Sulaim, One thousand men, all on their horses. And they used to put their swords, Banu Sulaim, they used to put their swords on the right side of the horse's neck. So they'd hold it in front of them like that on the right side. This is how they were known, Banu Sulaim. Everybody knew this. If you want to know who's Banu Sulaym, if it's an army coming to you, watch the swords. They used to put their swords on the right side of the neck of the, of, the, of the horse, like that, when they charged. The Ansar, the Medina people, they used to put their swords on the back, on the right side or the left side of the back, of the back side of the horse. As for the Muhajirin, the Meccans, and the Prophet ﷺ, they used to put the sword on top of the head of the horse when they charged. They had the sword ready. So the Meccans and the Muhajirin were the most fierce in battle, and the Madinians were set. Were, and the um, Madanians, they were very swift in the way they fought. You didn't know where the sword was hitting you, right? And so on. And then Banu Sulaim, they're ready from side to side. But the most vicious and in war were the Muhajirin. Anyway, as they were to, about to reach al-Ta'if, the Prophet ﷺ turns around and they go, "Where are we going, ya rasulullah Are we going to al-Ta'if?" He said, "We're going to Mecca. <laughs> Why did he do that, Alhamdulillah. Because he didn't want the Makkans to know that the Prophet sallam is coming for them. If they knew, they'll prepare themselves and get their allies. The Prophet did in absolute secrecy, and this is allowed. The Prophet sallam to say, khid'ah. War is treachery. War is trickery. So the Prophet sallam then led them marched. Now they're at about eight thousand seven hundred on their way. More tribes and allies came to join the Prophet sallam Suddenly, it was from Allah ta'ala until they reached ten thousand soldiers. Never in the history of Muslims has there been an army that big. 10,000 soldiers, the Muslims were. They're marching, and then the Prophet ﷺ stopped somewhere. And he divided them into groups. You know how he divided them? He put them into their tribal groups. And he made a sub-leader with every tribe. Now you might be thinking, but hold on, this is tribalism, this is nationalism. In some cases it's allowed to use a little bit of nationalism if it will suit the purpose you have got to understand these people are still new to Islam the only senior ones are the Muhajirin and the Ansar the rest of them they are new to Islam so Prophet Sallallahu utilized their love for their nationality, their love for their, for their and their blood in this cause you're allowed to sometimes mix between loving your blood and loving your deen but what's haram is to make your blood more worthy than your deen so that brothers who are not from your blood are not important? No. They were very, they were all brothers and sisters, but the Prophet ﷺ put them with their blood to strengthen the army. One of them was Sa'd ibn Ubadah with the Ansar. He was a young man, he got so, got, he, actually a bit old, about 40, he was, got so hyped up that he said, we are going to destroy the Meccans, we are going to destroy the Meccans, march everyone, march. The Prophet ﷺ saw him and he stopped him. He said, no Sa'd. We are not going to fight. We are going without the intention of fighting. If they fight us, we'll fight back. So Saad, you're too zealous. You've got too much energy. He took the leadership off him. Because he doesn't want this this, this stuff to happen. He doesn't want people to fight out of emotions and passion. He wants them to fight for the sake of Allah. And we're not going to fight, he said. We're not going to fight the Meccans. But to... So he doesn't denigrate him in front of his people. He put his son in his place to be the leader. So I just want to show you how the Prophet ﷺ was going in peace. He didn't intend to fight. As they got forward, Rasul Sallallahu stopped. And there was a man by the name of Hatib. Hatib radiallahu anhu was a Badri. Badr, a great man. But what happened? He had some family in Makkah and he was afraid for them. So he sent his, uh, his, his, one of the, the ladies, his friend, uh, who worked for them her name was um, her name was Sarah her name was Sarah with a secret letter to go to the Meccans and tell them Muhammad وسلم, is coming to fight you or is coming in to conquer Mecca Prophet وسلم, this is direct order no one's allowed to say anything so he basically betrayed out of his love for his own family and uh, there's a long story to her the Prophet sent Ali Radiallahu Anhu another companion because Jabir told him look he sent a letter with her in secret if they found out the whole Muslims were going to be massacred because they'll get their allies and they'll attack them. So Prophet ﷺ couldn't do that. So he sent Ali to that woman, her name was Sarah, and they forced her to release that letter. They gave her the letter and she ran away to the Meccans anyway. Later on, the Prophet ﷺ sentenced her to death, but then pardoned her because she embraced Islam. Anyway, the Prophet arrived about 16 kilometers to 20 kilometers away from Makkah. Makkah is many hills, and there are four places you can come in from. They are the northwest, southwest, south, and northeast. I know you're not going to remember that. Just remember big mountains, four places you can enter from. No other places. High mountains, 300 meters high, 500 meters high. No one's going to go over the mountains, over the hills. You can only enter from there. So the Prophet divided into four columns four big battalions he put on the first column Abu Ubaidat ibn al-Jarrah Amir anhu, as the leader of the first battalion the battalion of or the column of the Muhajirin and the early Ansar they were the most elite of the Sahabs, the senior Abu Bakr, Umar, Uthman all the seniors, of the big ones with Abu Ubaid ibn Jarrah and the commander-in-chief was Muhammad he was behind them the second column was led by az zubayr ibn al-Awwam anhu, the Prophet's first cousin they entered from southwest the third column, their leader, I'm sorry I said Ali but Ali had a job, he was the leader of the third column entering from the south and the fourth column was Khalid ibn al-Waleed entering from northeast Khalid ibn waleed he was a sick dude, man. He was like, he was massive. Like, he was freaking, like, sorry about that word. He was big, muscly, tall. He used to stand on his horse and fight with two swords. He stand to stand on his, on his legs, fight with two. He didn't even use a shield. The guy was, the guy is a ferocious lion. Man. Khalid ibn Walid, forget about it. Zubayr ibn Awam, same thing, man. Same thing, Zubayr, Prophet cousin, tall, very athletic. Allahu Akbar, once he cut a sahabi, uh, sorry, a kafir in the battle of of Badr, he took one blow with one sword, one one blow, Zubayr, and cut the guy in half, in half, two halves, one blow. Zubayr was massive; he was amazing. Khalid bin Walid goes into the northeast, and the Prophet told them, "Break your fast in Ramadan." They didn't fast when they did their war. They camped, and these were the columns. The Prophet then ordered the companions to light up a fire. Why? So that the Meccans can see massive fire, lots of people. It's a tactic to make them scared. The Prophet ﷺ started to pray his prayers, Qasr. Qasr means instead of four, he did them two. And he stayed on all this journey for about 19 days. 19 days the Prophet ﷺ was doing Qasr. Qasr. But not jama. He didn't combine the prayers, but he did Qasr. And this is probably... One point for the Hanafis, the people of the madhab of Imam Abu Hanifa, who believe that you can only do qasr when you're traveling, but not jama. But the majority of the ulama agree from the seerah of the Prophet ﷺ in hadith, that he used to make jama and qasr on his travel. Except this time, he only did qasr. Allahu alam, maybe jama was not yet uh, legislated. But the Prophet did qasr. He also did it for 19 days. And some ulama, they use this as evidence, that you're allowed to continue for 19, 20, 40 days doing Qasr and Jama. The majority of ulama agree to 40 days. Some agree to four nights only. So whichever madhab you want to follow, there is space, inshaAllah ta'ala. Don't sit there making it an issue of wala bara or an issue of jihad because someone wants to do Qasr, the other doesn't. My brothers and sisters in Islam, the Prophet sallallahu as he was camping, is about to get up to enter Makkah, then suddenly he sees a man, tall, big, loud voice, in fact, they had the loudest voice of all the companions. When he spoke, no one else could hear their voice. He was the Prophet's uncle, Al-Abbas ibn Abdul Muttalib. Al-Abbas radiallahu anhu. He was coming on a little mule, coming out of Mecca, intending to do hijrah to Medina. Remember, they didn't know the Prophet was there, remember? He wants to go to Medina. And he met the Prophet, he goes, Oh my God, what are you doing here? The Prophet was so happy. My uncle, Al-Abbas, you're doing hijrah. He says, yes, Ya Rasulullah. He said, we have come to conquer Mecca. Abul Abbas was the last muhajir. There were no more people who were muhajirun after him. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gave him that honor. Because the muhajirun are mentioned specifically in the Quran as the best. Nobody can equal them The muhajir. Abbas was the last of them. So he was among the elite. Abbas had a little sympathy for the Meccans. So when he knew the Prophet sallallahu Alaihi was uh, entering, He wanted to go and inform the leader, who was the leader of Mecca. What's his name? Ya Allah! Come on, guys! Getting me angry. Abu Sufyan. Abu Sufyan, the leader of Mecca. You watch any cartoon film about, uh, you know, the prophet's biography, and you'll see it. Karun. All right. Sorry about that, boys. In a bad mood today. I was teaching all day. Some students, they made my temperature go up. Hot day too today. The Prophet ﷺ stood up and he said, there is no hijrah after the conquest. Uh, Al-Abbas was the last muhajir. said, there is no hijrah after the conquest except jihad and good intentions or when you are called to jihad by a leader. Meaning, there was no more hijrah of Mecca to somewhere else and you'll be called the elite muhajir. Prophet ﷺ said, no more hijrah. And even today, you can live in any country you like, so long as you are afforded your deen to practice it, and that's fine. You don't have to say, we have to do hijrah, hijrah. Where, Where do you go? Where? Where do you go? Where's the Muslim country today? The best places we can go is the places where they give you peace and tranquility for your deen, but obviously you can make ishtihad. You can have an educational guess, and people who are more educated about the society they live in, the politics they live in, they can make a better guess, and they can tell people whether it's better to stay here or not. Like for example in China, the Yugos, the, the Chinese people, you all heard about them. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala protect them, this minority, are being persecuted severely. And if they can do hijrah, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala rewards them. And if they die there, I think Inshallah, they die shuhada. Wallahu alam. I have a friend who was there. He got in prison for two years for being caught with a copy of the Qur'an in his room. Chinese brother. He came into Australia on a visitor visa, went back, he was a good, businessman, and they, subhanAllah, two years now in prison. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala save him. My brothers and sisters in Islam... Al-Abbas decided to take the Prophet sallam little mule in the middle of the night and he wanted to go to inform Abu Sufyan. Now, at this point the Prophet sallam had lit up the fire so it was public anyway. Al-Abbas wasn't really part of them so he was allowed to go and tell Abu Sufyan. So, he was going into Mecca Abu Sufyan, uh, so, sorry, Al-Abbas and Abu Sufyan and a couple of the leaders, they were suspicious. They got sus. They thought what's happening? Is the Muhammad coming to attack us or what? So they came out to see What's going on? They wanted to go to Medina. As they were coming out, Abu Sufyan and the other two leaders, they look at each other. And as they're walking a few kilometers, they notice in the hills, fire surrounding Mecca. Mm. Abu Sufyan looks up and he goes, what the hell is that? And there was a man over there with him who was from Banu Mahzum, who got massacred. He said, maybe it's the Ta'if people. Maybe it's the Ta'if people. And Abu Sufyan goes, No, no, it's not the Ta'if people. They don't have the courage to do this, man. Let's go and find out what's going on. As they were walking in the night, they hear a big voice. Abu Sufyan? And he goes, Al-Abbas? It's Al-Abbas. He goes, what are you doing here? He says, "Yeah, Abu Sufyan, come here. Surrender to the messenger of Allah, for Allah he has brought an army you will not be able to resist. Surrender, surrender, Allah has given him victory. Abu Sufyan said, what? says, let me talk to him, let me find out what's going on. So now Abu Sufyan's scared, he's thinking, what is going on here? Al-Abbas puts him on his mule and he covers his face. Because if they saw him, what's going to happen to Abu Sufyan? They're going to kill him, he's an enemy. So Abu Sufyan goes on the mule with Al-Abbas and he's riding. Now, who's... Uh, who- Who's the guy that the Prophet put out as a guard? Who do you think? The guard of the camp. Who do you think is the guard? Have one guess. Who's the best one to be the guard? No, no, no Khalid's good at war. Who's the best one to be a guard? He's very, he's, he's always suspicious and he's very cunning. You can't mess around, you can't trick him. Who? Omar. Omar anhu. He doesn't care, man. That guy doesn't give a damn about anything. <laughs> so long as it's right, Allah will do it. He's the guard. So everybody's looking, he's this thing, Al-Abbas with a guy that's covered his face. Oh, no big deal. The Prophet's uncle, the Prophet's uncle. But not Omar, he doesn't fall for it. He looks at him. He comes up, and goes, who's that? Al-Abbas said, don't worry, he's just a man with me. So Omar goes, no. He comes up to him and rips the veil off his face. He goes, Abu Sufyan? Wallahi, you cannot, you cannot come in using safety now. You are not safe. You are not safe. I'm gonna kill you. He takes out his sword, he's about to kill Abu Sufyan. And then Al-Abbas says, what are you doing Ya Umar? He's in my protection. He said, he's not gonna get away with it. He says, he's in my protection Ya Umar. And Omar starts to get a bit confused. He goes, look, maybe, maybe I shouldn't kill him. I'm not gonna do something wrong. And that's how the, the senior sahabas weren't quick at doing it. They would think. So Umar khattab thought, but then he thought of a different strategy. He goes, okay. And then he boots off. Where is he running? He's running to the Prophet. ﷺ. He thought, if I can get to the Prophet ﷺ and tell him first that Abu Sufyan's yeah, he'll tell me go and kill him and I'll kill him before he gets to him. So Al Abbas sees him run Al Abbas starts galloping on his mule. Little mule. Umar is racing. Al Abbas is racing with Abu Sufyan on top, thinking, what is going to happen to me? Abu Sufyan's about to do it under him, really seriously. And he's, about, and he's about to reach the Prophet Prophet's tent. Umar comes in. Al Abbas comes in. Umar says, Ya Rasulullah, it's Abu Sufyan. Al Abbas says, Ya Rasulullah he's in my protection. Now, any companion who puts someone in their protection, the Prophet ﷺ gave him protection because he's the merciful compassion. And Umar knows that if al Abbas gets to him, the Prophet ﷺ is compassionate, he will let him off. Everybody knew that. You get to the Prophet, ﷺ, even if you're sentenced to death, he'll let you go. So the Prophet ﷺ said, All right, all right, Abu Sufyan has been given protection. Sit down. Abu Sufyan sits in front of the Prophet ﷺ and he says, what do you think, Ya Abu Sufyan, of all of this? And Abu Sufyan says, Ya Muhammad, now is the moment of truth. We've always known you to be a compassionate man. And you're a person who connects family ties. I can bear witness to that. So Al-Abbas looks at Abu Sufyan and says, and he yells at him. He goes, Uli Aslim, become a Muslim. It's the Libo way came into me, the Lebanese. Uli Aslim. It's like in the, uh, I've said it before. What do Somalians say? What? What you? are you? you? become a Muslim in Turkish, lam, become a Muslim in Arabic, in Lebanese, Ule Aslim, what are you doing? How much of a thick head have you got? And Abu Sufyan looks at him and says, To be honest, as for that I still have doubt in my heart. How am I supposed to become a Muslim and I'm still doubting Islam? So the Prophet ﷺ put his hand on his chest and he said, Yeah Abu Sufyan, when will you become a Muslim after all the miracles that have been shown to you? So Al-Abbas says, look man, you've got all this army against you, just say the shahada. So Abu Sufyan says the shahada but he didn't mean it. But he just said it to give himself amnesty and protection. The Prophet Sallallahu knew he didn't mean it but he let it go. He thought, look, maybe we'll get, we'll get to know Islam a little bit more as, as, as the days go by. So he says, okay. Then Al-Abbas says, Ya Rasulullah, since Al-Abbas has said the shahada, give him some privilege. So then the Prophet Sallallahu said, anyone from the Meccans who stays in the house of Abu Sufyan will be protected. We're not going to harm them. So Abu Sufyan gets really happy. He goes, my house? That's a privilege. you know, Because Abu Sufyan, he had this, he had this uh, habit. He loved leadership. He loved to show off. Okay, that, that's his habit. Everybody knew Abu Sufyan was like that. Of course, Islam helped him to become better. But he liked to show off. So the Prophet ﷺ gave him a little bit. And that's okay. Look, someone embraces Islam. Somebody you want to work with. Somebody you want to bring him close. It's okay to give him some privileges as an encouragement. So the Prophet ﷺ wanted to encourage Abu Sufyan to show him that, look, after all of this, I'm still respecting you as a human being. I'm still respecting. Yes, you're my enemy. You've done a lot of stuff. But everybody needs chances. And I'm respecting you as a human being. Anyone who enters your house... We're not going to harm him. So then Abu Sufyan goes, look, thank you for that. But my house is too small. It's not going to keep all of the Meccans in there. You've got over a thousand people. He said, okay. Anybody who stays in the Haram, the, there's a particular area, circumference around the Kaaba. Anyone who's in there will not be harmed. He goes, that's good. But Ya Rasulullah, there's still more. He goes, and anybody who locks themselves up inside their home and doesn't walk roaming out in the street, they're inside their home, will not be harmed. That was beautiful. So Abu Sufyan says, can I go? He says, you can go. The Prophet ﷺ took Al-Abbas and says to him, now this is, this is a funny part. He says, Ya Abbas, Ya Uncle, go to him and when he's at that hill over there, stop him there and don't let him go into Makkah until we come. Okay, we're going to go in before him, but just stay there. So Al-Abbas doesn't tell Abu Sufyan about that. He takes him he goes, let's go. As they're walking and he's almost about to reach Makkah, he reaches a hill where you can see everything. And Al-Abbas in the middle of the night. Remember what I told you, he's got a big voice. So Abu Sufyan's walking, he's thinking, he's paranoid, he's thinking this guy's going to stab me in the back, Uh, maybe someone's going to kill me soon because I didn't really become a Muslim. So imagine all these things are going through his head. A thousand thoughts. And then suddenly he hears a big guy, who's the Prophet's uncle, massive, massive voice in the middle of the night, no protection, and he goes, stop! As soon as he says stop, Abu Sufyan says, don't kill me! Banu Hashim, come on, you're unbetrayed, don't kill me. And abbas looks at him and he goes, Ah, are you that scared? Abu Sufyan goes, come on, man. He almost fell to the ground, Abu Sufyan. And this was a psychological attempt from Prophet to make him afraid psychologically that listen, don't think of anything back. Because Abu Sufyan's still thinking, how can I get out of this? And Prophet knew this, so he's making him scared. So they sit there. And then the Prophet asks the columns, he commands them to march into Makkah in the morning about Fajr. Now, Abu Sufyan is watching these four columns marching, and this is what happens. He stands up and he sees the first column, a few thousand men. They're marching in with their swords on the right and left side of their horses' necks. Not in their necks, on the side. Abu Sufyan looks at them and he goes to Al Abbas. He goes to Al Abbas, who the heck are those soldiers? Al Abbas goes, they're Banu Sulaym. Abu Sufyan goes, what the hell is between me and Abu Sulaym, man? Why are these guys coming to Makkah? There's no problems between me and them, we've got no beef. And then Al Abbas says, they converted to Islam and now they are with the Prophet. As he was waiting, Abu Sufyan sees another column come, a few thousand men, and they've got their swords on the sides of their horses at the back. He goes, who the heck are those now? Another? And Abu Sufyan, and then Al-Abbas goes to him, they are the Arabs of Medina, mixed with Ansar and some Arabs. He goes, look at that man. Abu Sufyan goes, I hope that's not enough. And suddenly, before he knew it, he sees the most uniformed and fearless soldiers on horses, with their swords on top of the heads of their horses, ready to, like, just ready, but not going to attack. And he goes, Oh my God, who on earth are those? They were like, they looked very, very powerful. They looked extremely fearful, extremely fearless. You look at them, you, you, you just want to walk away. Just, and Al-Abbas said, Well, those are the Muhajirun and the Ansar. And with them is the Prophet wasallam." Remember what I told you, Al-Muhajirun and the Ansar were the first elite senior companions. No one is better than them. They were uniformed. You can't mess with them, man. And Abu Sufyan could feel it. And then Al Abbas said, "I told you, Abu Sufyan, just surrender, shut up, stay low, just do whatever he says, man." So Abu Sufyan he enters Mecca before the soldiers come in. Prophet Wasallam gives him a chance to hide everyone, and this is what he does. He goes, Ya Ma'ashara Quraysh, Ya Ma'ashara Quraysh. Now Abu Sufyan, he was tall, but he was also, excuse me for saying this, he's a bit fat. He, was, he, had, he had weight on him. That's how he was. because he's a leader, he loves eating a lot, he loves lazing a lot, he was fat. And his wife Hind knew this. Hind. So when he entered, I'll tell you why I'm saying this. He says, Ya Ma'ashara Quraysh, come here, come here. La muqama lakum. Today you cannot resist the Prophet sallallahu Hind looks at him, and goes, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam you coward and then she looks at everybody and says don't listen to this fat so coward that's what him said his wife don't listen to this fat man the coward and Abu Sufyan says don't listen to this manipulative woman what I'm telling you is the truth so they said okay Abu Sufyan we know that you're a businessman and you always you know count your losses we believe you what do you want he goes Anybody who stays in my house is safe. They go, <laughs> may Allah make your face hideous. That's what they go, Allah. In your house, is this all you want? You want it to look good? Because they know him. Abu Sufyan loves showing up. They continue, goes, and whoever stays in the haram is safe. They go, oh, that makes sense. That's all right. And whoever stays in their house is safe. They go, man, this guy's serious. Alright, thank you, We'll, we'll do that. All of them, when they saw the Prophet ﷺ and the army coming in, they went to the Haram, some went to Abu Sufyan's house, and some of them locked themselves up in the house. When the Prophet ﷺ arrived, almost arriving, sorry, something amazing happened. There was an old man, probably 70 years old, standing on one of the hills, and with him was his daughter. He was blind. Blind old man, white hair. And he's telling his daughter, tell me what is happening with that army. And she would describe. She said, now they're camped. He goes, okay. Now what's happening? She goes, now they're dividing. He goes, those are the horses. He goes, now what? He goes, now they're going. He goes, those are the columns. Going into different areas. He goes, move, move, move. Take me home, take me home. That's Muhammad's army coming into Mecca. Who was he? He was the father of Abu Bakr as Siddiq. His name was Uthman, but they used to call him Abu Quhafa. So Abu Bakr was called Abu Bakr Siddiq ibn Abi Quhafa. Yabna Abi Quhafa. Old man, blind. Everyone in Abu Bakr family family had embraced Islam. His wife, his daughters, his sons. Except for his father, he had not embraced Islam yet. His mother, all of them. So Abu Qahafa, he goes to his daughter, take me, take me home quick, we've got to get into the house. So because he's a, he's a slow man, he's old, he couldn't make it in time to his house, but he was roaming around. And you know, the Prophet said, you have to be in your house or at the Haram, or in Abu Sufyan's house. If you're caught roaming around, you're going to be arrested. So the companions, seeing this old man, they didn't know he was Abu Bakr's father, they arrested him. And they took him, to the Prophet. Abu Bakr anh, met him, he knew he was his father, and then he brought him. He brought him to the Prophet وسلم, and he said, Ya Rasulullah, this is my father, Abu Quhafa, and he has come. I think he wants to convert to Islam. The Prophet وسلم, looks at this old man and he feels compassion for him and he feels love for his best friend Abu Bakr. He said, Ya Abu Bakr, Ya Siddiq. Why did you all bring him here and trouble this old man, putting him into hardship? All you had to do, take him to his house, let him rest, and call me. I will go to him. I will go to him. Ya Allah. Respecting an old man. See, Rasulullah wasallam. Abu Bakr di Allah'an, said, Ya Rasulullah, you, you are more worthy of my father coming to you because you are the messenger of Allah. The Prophet ﷺ sat Abu Qahafa down and he placed his hand onto Abu Qahafa's chest and he said to him, Aslim taslam, aslim taslam, aslim taslam. Submit to Allah, Ya Abu Qahafa, and you will have salvation from Allah. Submit and you will have salvation. the Prophet ﷺ is making dua for him. And suddenly Abu Qahafa's heart began to shiver and he felt compassion and humility he said, He said, the shahada, and the Prophet ﷺ celebrated. Normally, you would only see his white teeth. But when he was so happy, you would see even his gums. That means Prophet was basically laughing, celebrating. Abu Bakr sees the Prophet like that, and the Prophet he places his hand into Abu, into Abu Qahaf's hand, and he, Abu Bakr pledges allegiance to the Prophet He looks at Abu Bakr and says, "Yeah, Abu Bakr, congratulations! Your father has embraced Islam. All your family are Muslim. Abu Bakr, every member of his family was Muslim. What an honor!" And suddenly he sees Abu Bakr anhu, crying so badly until his spirit was soaked with tears. He says, Man, kika, Ya Abu Bakr, why are you crying? Your father just embraced Islam. You should be celebrating." And he said. لَوَدِدْتُ أن هَذِهِ الْيَدْ يد عَمِّكَ وَأَنْ يُقِرَّ اللَّهُ عَيْنَكَ بِإِسْلَامِهِ خَيْرٌ لِي مِنْ أَبِي Abu Bakr al said, اَوْ يَا رَسُولَ اللَّهُ If Allah, Allah were to make you smile like this with the conversion of your uncle Abu Talib, and his hand was in your hand today, I would be happier than seeing my father putting his hand in your hand. That's from the love of the Prophet ﷺ that he had. Seeing the Prophet ﷺ that his uncle died not embracing Islam, Prophet ﷺ lived in sorrow for a year, and until that day, why did my uncle not embrace Islam? And Abu Bakr, he always, almost, it's as if Abu Bakr and Prophet ﷺ had the same heart. Abu Bakr was always feeling with the feelings of the Prophet ﷺ. And he remembered the Prophet's uncle saying, I wish he was in my dad's place. Wallahi, a very emotional time. My brothers and sisters, then Rasulullah did something. He gathered the companions and said, There are 12 people that need to be killed. If you see them wherever they are, in their homes, in the Haram, in Abu Sufyan's house, even if they were holding onto the ropes of the Kaaba, you must kill them. Sentenced to death. They were, and I'll tell you who they are. Abdul Uzza ibn Khatal. He was found clinging on the curtains of Al Kaaba and he was killed by Ali, including his two singing girls, Kariba and Farana, who fled. Karina was killed and Farana fled. They are the singing girls of Abdul Uzza ibn the reason that the Prophet ﷺ said he has to be killed was this man, he murdered a Muslim slave earlier of one of the Ansar Muslims over a trivial matter They were camped and the slave did not prepare a goat to eat it. So this man, Abdul Uzzah, gets up and he kills the slave Muslim man because he didn't prepare the goat. And then he apostatized. He left Islam and went to Makkah and hired two women to sing poetry, to make a campaign, to incite violence against the Muslims. and this was one of the causes of the many battles that the Meccans fought against the prophet Wasallam. because of this man and those two singing women who campaigned, and because of them, many Muslims got killed. So the Prophet Wasallam said, "These three are to be killed." Uh, Qareeba was killed, and the other woman, Farna, she escaped and then later on converted to Islam and she was pardoned. The second man who the, or the third person Prophet ﷺ, said to be killed was Abdullah ibn Sa'd ibn Abi Sarh. This guy converted to Islam. And then he wrote the Qur'an. He was one of those who wrote the Qur'an. Then he apostatized. He left Islam. Then he went to Mecca, And then he started to say the Qur'an is forged. And he started to incite a campaign against the Prophet ﷺ. This man, the Prophet ﷺ said, kill him wherever you find him. However, what happened to him was he fled Mecca. He ran away. And who found him? Uthman ibn Affan radiallahu anhu. And he was his foster brother. He gave him protection. He said, come with me, I'll give you protection. And Uthman brought this man to the Prophet ﷺ. And the Prophet ﷺ recognized him. He was one of those who was sentenced to death. The Prophet ﷺ looked at him and he put his head down. Then Uthman said, Ya Rasulullah, he is in my protection. He has come to convert to Islam. So the man put his hand out. The Prophet ﷺ wouldn't put his hand out. He put his hand out a second time. The Prophet ﷺ wouldn't put his hand out. He put his hand out a third time. The Prophet ﷺ wouldn't put his hand out. And then he put his hand out a fourth time. And the Prophet ﷺ accepted it. He said the shahada and left. Then the Prophet ﷺ looked at his companions and said, What's wrong with you people? Isn't any one of you smart enough? I said that he is to be killed. I didn't put my hand out waiting for one of you to kill him. They said, well, Rasulullah, we couldn't read what's in your heart. Why didn't you kind of wink or say something? And the Prophet ﷺ replied, it is not befitting of any Prophet to use gestures in a shifty way to kill someone. He never winks or gives gestures. It's clear. So he was pardoned. Another man was Ikrimah ibn Abi Jahl. Ikrimah, the son of Abu Jahl, the great Abu Jahl. We all know Abu Jahl, yeah? He fled. And his story is amazing. He fled Mecca. And he went to sail on, on, on a ship. They were Christians. And then the waves hit really high. And in Ikrimah, he noticed that the waves were really high. And he heard the Christians say, Oh God, oh God, oh God. They didn't even say, oh Jesus. And that's what happens when people are in need. Who do they call upon? God. Subhanallah. They say, oh God. Even an atheist says God when he's in need. And this man, Akramah, he says, you know what? Our idols didn't benefit us. And these people are calling upon God. Wallahi, if our gods were really those idols, they would have benefited us today. And he says, oh Allah, if you save me, I will be a devout Muslim and I will follow Muhammad His wife converted to Islam and she came to the Prophet saying, Ya Rasulullah, give my husband Ikrimah Amnesty. He says, okay, if you want, go and get him. So she went and got Ikrimah, And because of her, Rasulullah ﷺ gave Ikrimah protection. And he also pledged allegiance and became a Muslim. Another one was Al-Hawairith ibn Nuqaym. This guy also. And the reason was that uh, he was among those who insulted the Prophet ﷺ and his two daughters, Fatima and Ummu Kulthum. Now the insult wasn't just insult. The insult was a type that got so bad that their lives almost got... any. They almost got killed as a result of his campaigning and his, and his insult. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam also said to kill him. Uh, and he was killed. Ya Habibi. Sit over there. Sit over there. Okay, that's it. Allah khalli li Khalili Ahlaka. Now, the other one was Miqyas. Miqyas ibn Subaba. He was also killed. So only four people were really killed. And the reason for that, his story is long, and that is that uh, his brother got accidentally killed in the battle of Uhud. And he wanted to avenge his brother. So he accepted blood money. He accepted blood money for being accidentally killed by a Muslim in the battle of Uhud. He took the money. And on top of that, he still went and murdered the guy who accidentally killed his brother in the battle of Uhud. He didn't even mean it. And on top of that, he apostatized, left Islam. And on top of that, he went back to Mecca to incite hatred and violence against the Prophet ﷺ and his people. The Prophet ﷺ ordered for him to be killed. He uh, fled Mecca. Sorry, he was killed. He was found on the ropes of the Kaaba and he was killed. And then there was Habbar ibn al-Aswad. Habbar uh, was pardoned by converting to Islam and seeking forgiveness. The reason the Prophet ﷺ said to kill him was this guy... He followed the daughter of the Prophet Zainab radiallahu anha, when she was migrating from Mecca to Medina. She was by herself and she was pregnant. And this guy he chased after the Prophet's daughter Zaynab and with a sword he injured her shoulder. He hit her on the shoulder and she fell on the ground, subhanallah had no mercy, onto a rock, and she lost her baby. And when she reached the Prophet ﷺ, and the guy fled back to Mecca, when he reached when she reached the Prophet, ﷺ, she died a few months after that as a result of the injury which this guy uh, made to Zainab amazingly enough this guy managed to flee he came back to the Prophet ﷺ, and he embraced Islam and Prophet ﷺ forgave him صلى truly للعالمين, mercy to all mankind and later on he took great positions in Islam and, and, and made up for what he did wrong uh, Sarah the one who hid the letter remember and went to tell the Meccans she was also sentenced to death but she embraced Islam and was pardoned as well Al-Harith Ibn Talatin, who was killed. The reason for that, that he was the most damaging in inciting violence against the Muslims. There was also Ka'b Ibn Zuhair. He apostatized and incited hatred and all that stuff. And then he converted back to Islam and he made a great poem in Lebanon and in Arab countries with you Ritchie 11. We always learn his famous poem. He made an amazing poem for the Prophet ﷺ and made up for all the wrong that he did before. Then there was Wahshi. Remember Washi? You guys almost forgot about Washi, the guy who killed Hamza, the Allahu Anhu. He comes to the Prophet ﷺ and Bilal, I think, or his daughter, I don't know who it was, they gave him protection and he arrived with the Prophet ﷺ and he pledged allegiance, but the Prophet ﷺ refused to shake his hand. He, he, he refused to look at him. Because he said to him, Ya Wahshi, before you pledge allegiance, tell me, describe to me how you killed Hamza. And when he described to him, the Prophet ﷺ remembered. And he started to cry, and he couldn't look at Wahshi in his face. He said, go away from my face. I accept your Islam, but get away from my face. I can't look at you. And Wahshi got out, and was still holding that. Think, man, I was a slave, and I was still a nobody. I embraced Islam, I killed Hamza, and I was still a nobody. I embraced Islam, and I'm still a nobody. And he grabbed his, 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 um, the, the spear, and he said, it's all your fault. I will make up for the wrong that I did until Islam accepts me well, and I become glorified in front of Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And later on, after the death of Prophet Sallallahu he managed to kill the worst enemies of Islam, Musaylam al-Kadhab. We'll talk about him when we reach. And the Muslims glorified Wahshi. And his subhanAllah, Allah gave him glory before he died. And there was Hind. Remember Hind? She's the one who got Wahshi to kill Hamza. The Prophet Sallallahu said, you have to kill her as well. Now Hind, she was a tough one. And she's very vocal. So uh, she ran away. She hid inside somewhere. And uh, the Prophet ﷺ entered Matka. When he entered mecca what happened? All the columns that entered, nobody faced them. Except for Khalid ibn Walid. He enters, and who faced him? Ikrimah and another one called Safwan. Safwan, whose father Umayyah was the master of Bilal. They were vicious men, they were big, they were short. Now I'm going to tell you just before they embraced Islam, right? So Ikrimah has not. Like Ikrima, I just told you that I embraced Islam and all that stuff, but we're going to go backwards now. So now he's entering, Ikrima comes in with an army and tries to fight Khalid ibn Walid. Khalid ibn Walid, he holds his swords and he looks at Ikrima uh, with his head like this and he goes, what are you doing? You know, like that. Like Khalid ibn Walid's thinking, what are you trying to do? You know, I I was... With a click of fingers, you're finished. And Ikrima goes, try it. Khalid ibn Walid, (laughs) he loves war. Khalid ibn Walid, forget about it. He does this with his swords he goes, charge and within a few minutes they killed 12 of their men and they only killed 2 of the Muslims and then they fled Ikrima and Safwan they ran away Safwan ran away and left Mecca Ikrima left Mecca Safwan, he leaves Mecca and he goes somewhere I don't know where he went and his daughter uh, Safwan his daughter I think it was or was it his best friend who gave him protection yeah, it was his wife, sorry it was his wife. She came to the Prophet sallam, and said, Ya Rasulullah, about Safwan, will you give him protection? And the Prophet, sallam, because he fought. When you fight, the Muslims, that's it, you have to be killed. So Safwan is a very stubborn man. He doesn't want to embrace Islam. He's always about his father. He got killed. He got killed in the Battle of Badr. I've got to get Muhammad. I've got to. So the Prophet sallam, said to her, Listen, if you go and get him and he embraces Islam, he's protected. Then she said, Look, he's a stubborn man. What if he doesn't embrace Islam? He said, don't worry. We'll give him four months protection to think about it. And after the four months, he has to leave Makkah. So she goes to him and says, Ya Safwan, I gave you protection. He says, no, you're lying. She said, look, if you embrace Islam, he goes, I don't want to embrace Islam. He goes, but he gave you four months protection. He goes, I I can deal with that. So he comes back to Makkah and he's given four months protection, Safwan. That's the Prophet's compassion. So Khalid bin Walid comes back to the Prophet ﷺ And the Prophet hears about Khalid bin Walid Fighting people And he gets angry The Prophet ﷺ didn't know the story He goes, yeah Khalid Now, the Prophet ﷺ has already got this Assumption about Khalid That he loves to fight He's a man of war So he says, Khalid Didn't I tell you not to fight? No fighting in Mecca And then he said, ya Rasulullah They attacked us first And we had to fight Then the Prophet ﷺ forgave him He goes, alright, that's okay Then they entered Mecca they entered Mecca, my dear brothers and sisters in Islam. Ali radiyallahu anhu, he chases after a few of the groups who are fighting. And where do they go? They go to his sister, Ummu Ali radiyallahu sister. And they hide in her house. Ali radiyallahu chases after them. And he's covered his face with armor. He enters and she says, who's this? She takes off his mask and she realizes it's her brother Ali radiyallahu anhu. So she says, they're in my protection, Ya Ali. She says, I want to take them to the Prophet Sallallahu She says, they're in my protection, Ya Ali. Leave them alone. So she goes, I'll take them to the Prophet Sallallahu So Umm she goes and takes these men to the Prophet Sallallahu sallam, and says, Ya Rasulullah, I've given them protection. So the Prophet Sallallahu sallam, said, anyone who Umm gives protection to is under our protection as well. You see how they, subhanallah, they, did, they didn't differentiate between genders, between women and men. All of them were valued. The only difference in Islam is in roles, like 10% of the roles that befit them. And for example, a woman who's pregnant can't be given the role of leadership and providing the family. She can not go out and work and do all this while she's pregnant, while she's giving birth, subhanAllah. Who takes care of that? The husband. So you can't say that they are equal in everything, but they are equitable, like fairness with Allah that He gave us. now. The Prophet enters, and what does he do? He recites the verses while crying. And subhanallah the Prophet enters in the Sahabas. If you were there to watch it, you would cry and fall to the ground. They entered in absolute silence. They were all crying. Men and women. Some of the Muslims, their family was still in Mecca, they're rushing to the Sahabas. The wife is hugging her husband. The children are hugging their dad. The husband is running to his wife. Those people were left back in Makkah. Some people get off their horses and they start kissing the floor. They carry the sand and they put it on their mouth. The Muhajirun they miss their homeland. Makkah is back, and the Prophet Wasallam enters on his horse, uh, sorry, on his camel, and he ha- and he he puts his head down in humility. Prophet Wasallam puts his head down all the way. They said his beard reached, it t- started touching the the, 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 the saddle he was in humility and lifted his head up and he started reciting in faatahna laka fathaman mubeena liyawfir laka allahuma ma taqaddama min dhanbika wa ma وَيُتِمَّ نِعْمَتَهُ عَلَيْكَ وَيَهْدِيَكَ صِرَاطًا مُسْتَقِيمًا وَيَنصُرَكَ اللَّهُ نَصْرًا عَزِيزًا Surah Al-Fatih, which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed in Surah Al-Hudaybiyah Allah says, we have surely opened for you a great opening Allah forgives you Whatever has passed and whatever comes forward And He is now going to bestow His favor upon you and guide you to a straight path, the path of Islam. And Allah will surely give you victory from here onwards forever. A great victory and glory to you and the Muslims. Surah Al Fatih. The Prophet ﷺ kept reciting this verse with a loud voice. He reaches the Zamzam water to drink from it after doing his. Uh, so he reaches the water Zamzam and he sees Al Abbas and he says, Ya Abbas, you and your family until the end of time will be responsible for Zamzam. And then the Prophet ﷺ went to Safa. He stands up at Safa, and he calls the people of Quraysh. And he says to them, come here, I want to talk to you. He said, Allah has made Makkah a sanctuary since the day he created the heavens and the earth. And it will remain a sanctity by the will of Allah till the end of time. Anyone who enters it will feel at peace. Fighting in Makkah was not made lawful to anyone before me, nor will it be made lawful to anyone after me. and it was not made lawful for me except for a short period of time. It's animals that can be hunted should not be chased, nor should its trees be cut, nor its vegetation or grass uprooted, nor belongings that are found left behind by someone can be picked up and a lot of people's belongings up, except by one who makes a public announcement about them. So even today, if you go to Mecca, you'll realize some people who live there, they understand. If you leave your wallet, you leave your bag, nobody picks it up. No one even comes up and says, you lost something. Unless it's straight behind you. If someone finds something, they won't touch it. Because of the hadith, the saying of the Prophet ﷺ, which will last till the end of time. SubhanAllah, 1,400 years later, brothers and sisters, and these words of the Prophet ﷺ still are respected by people today. The Prophet ﷺ then climbed off Safa. Safa is where the message began, and Safa is where the message of Makkah ended. He looked at the people of Quraysh and he said to them, Ya Ma'shar of Quraysh, O people of Quraysh, ما ظنكم أني فاعل bikum? What do you think I'm going to do to you? They're all just sitting there, they're waiting. What is the Prophet going to do? Is he going to kill us? Is he going to tell us to leave our homes? What's he going to do? He said, what do you think I'm going to do with you? They turned to him and said, we've only known you to be a generous, merciful man, son of a generous and merciful family. And the Prophet ﷺ said to them, I'm going to say to you what Yusuf ﷺ said to his brothers. You know the brothers who threw him in the well, wanted to kill him. Same thing. The Prophet ﷺ put himself like Yusuf ﷺ. Why? Yusuf's family wanted to kill him. Who's the family of the Prophet? ﷺ? The Meccans. They are all related to him, their family. Remember when Warat ibn said, Your people are going to kick you out? He says, My own people, my own family. So he looked at himself like Yusuf alayhi salam. And this is in correlation also for the year of sorrow when he lost his wife and his uncle, remember? And Allah sent Surah Yusuf. And the Prophet ﷺ couldn't help himself but say, I will say to you what Yusuf said to his brothers no harm or blame will come upon you today i'm not gonna blame you for anything get out of your homes go you are free you are free to stay you are free to go you are free to stay to convert you are free to stay on your own religion you are free Allahu Akbar. and this was the cause for three quarters of them to embrace Islam on that same day, they said, "This man cannot be a normal man, except a prophet." I'll finish it with a few miracles that happened after that. The Prophet ﷺ was doing his circumambulation, he was doing umrah now. He comes in around the Kaaba, and there was a, a man by the name of Fudara. He's got a little dagger, and he starts to approach the Prophet ﷺ slowly as he's doing his tawaf. As he approached the Prophet Sallallahu the Prophet Sallallahu put his hand on, it, on the man's chest and he said, Fudala, you've got a dagger in there and you've come to kill me. He said, how did you know? He put his hand on his chest and he said, Say Astaghfirullah. He said Astaghfirullah. Say Astaghfirullah again. He said Astaghfirullah. Say Astaghfirullah again. He said Astaghfirullah a third time. And then the man said, Wallahi, I felt my heart feeling love for the Prophet Sallallahu On the spot I said, I bear witness you are the Messenger of God. Wallahi, I came to kill you and you were the most hated Suddenly you are the most beloved to me And they kept circumambulating And they started talking and chit-chatting like mates and friends Second, Abu Sufyan Remember Abu Sufyan was not a real Muslim So he's sitting there in front of the Kaaba And he's like this What am I going to do? What am I going to do? And he's thinking inside, inside He's thinking How am I going to gather people to kill Muhammad And to get us out of here And take over Makkah again Abu Sufyan is thinking like that He says, okay, I'm going to summon this group I'm going to summon that group And they will attack Muhammad And then we'll get out The Prophet Sallallahu he's, he's on the other side, right? And this guy's thinking in his head He's sitting there thinking in his head The Prophet ﷺ, Then suddenly Abu Sufyan goes I felt a hand touch my back I looked and it was Muhammad Sallallahu And he said to me In that case, Allah will defeat you Abu Sufyan goes you, you knew what I was thinking? He said yes. And he smiled. And he kept circumambulating. Abu Sufyan looks and he goes, That's when, That was when my heart began to believe in Muhammad ﷺ. If that wasn't all, Abu Sufyan gets up and he walks to a couple of leaders of Quraysh that were sitting on the side. Uh, their names were Harith ibn Hisham and Utab ibn Usayd. They were talking among each other. And what had happened? The Prophet sent Bilal, Bilal, up onto the top of the Kaaba. You know what you saw in the message? He's going up to the Kaaba and he's going to make the adhan. Now Bilal used to be a slave and you know a slave. And so the, the first guy, Harith ibn Hisham, his father had died. He goes, Allah has blessed my father Hisham from being here to witness this terrible, terrible denigration. A slave climbing up on top of the Kaaba. My father died, Alhamdulillah, not to witness this. And then Utah, the son of Usayd, he goes, and usayd too, my father, alhamdulillah, he's dead. That he didn't come to witness this denigration of a slave climbing on top of the Kaaba. Oh, what humiliation. Then they looked at Abu Sufyan, they go, what would you say? Abu Sufyan says, man, I'm, I will not dare to say anything. Wallahi, if I say something, see these pebbles on the floor? They will tell Rasulullah that I said it. It's so paranoid. And suddenly the Prophet ﷺ comes around, he sees them, he comes right up to them laughing. He says, what's wrong? He said, Ya Harith, Alhamdulillah, Hisham is not alive to witness this denigration. Ya, U, ya uh, Utab, Alhamdulillah, Usayd is not alive to witness this denigration. Ya Aba Sufyan, even the pebbles will tell me what you said, so you haven't said anything. And I go, oh my God, how did he know that we said this? Three of them, they said, that's it. We are all Muslim and they all embrace the stand from the bottom of their heart. Only a messenger of God would know something like that. The Prophet then breaks 360 idols that were around the Ka'bah, including Hubal, the big statue, and all the companions start breaking them while reciting Wakul Ja al wa The truth has come and the false has vanished. Al Indeed, the false always vanishes. Brothers and sisters, this is not just a, a statement, this is a wise statement. False. Will never ever last. False always dies. And the truth comes. The false takes many, uh, takes a large head start. It reaches halfway across the world, but guess what's behind? The truth. Always, 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 always the truth catches up. And the false, brothers and sisters, never lasts. Always the truth. And this was the moment the Prophet said. So the Prophet I'll tell you this last story. Now he wants to enter the Kaaba. So he goes to a man, his name is Uthman ibn Abi Tahan. And what he says to him, he's got the key to the Kaaba. His family has always had the key to the Kaaba. This is an honor. So he goes to him, Ya Uthman. Ya yeah, we're almost done. He goes and says, Get me the key for the Kaaba. And then this guy, Uthman, not Uthman ibn Uthman, Uthman ibn uh, Abi Talha, he says, I haven't got the key. It's with my mother. And the Prophet ﷺ said to him, You remember years back, When I asked you for the key in Mecca, there was an incident between him and this guy, Uthman, before the Prophet left Mecca, where he said to him, Ya Uthman, give me the key to enter the Kaaba. And Uthman said, I will not give you the key. Give me the key, I will not give you the key. Give me the key, Ya Uthman, Wallahi, one day I'm going to come here and force the key out of you. He said, If a day comes when you force the key out of me, I would rather the earth swallow me. So now he's standing in front of the Prophet 10 or 13 years later, and he remembers. He goes, alright, I'll go get you the key. He goes to his mother, and his mother said, nope. She grabs the key and puts it here. You're not touching it. Now Uthman is not his mother. Give me the key. This is Muhammad. Just give me the key, Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. She says, no, 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 no. I'm not going to give you the key. Who arrives? Al-Abbas. comes and says, what's this, Ya Uthman? Get me the key. The Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi is waiting. And then his mother gets scared. He goes, hey, take, take the key, take the key. She gives the key to Uthman, her son, and he goes to the Prophet Sallallahu now Ali radiallahu anhu comes along he wants to take the key off Uthman. He says, give me the key. He said, no, I'm not going to give you the key. I'll open it. He said, give me the key and give it to the Prophet Allah, this is amazing. He says, no. So he runs away and Ali anhu chases after him. He climbs up the Kaaba on top of the roof, Uthman. And he doesn't want to give the key to Ali. Ali radiallahu anhu climbs up. Climbs up. And he grabs the key by force and pushes him away. He gives the key to the Prophet ﷺ, And the Prophet opens the Kaaba. As he was opening it, Al-Abbas looks at him and says, Ya Rasulullah, you gave me the Zamzam. Now give me the key. Let it be in the Abbas family. The Abbasids. As soon as he did that, Allah ﷻ sent down a verse in the Qur'an. Which says, In Surah Al-Nisa, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala, verse 58, it said, Allah commands you to return the rights to their rightful owners. Allahu akbar. A verse came down for the Prophet to give the key back to Uthman. So he said to Ali, Ya Ali, go and give the key back to Uthman and apologize to him and do not leave until he has forgiven you. He goes back to. Subhanallah! He goes back. Aaaliyahu uh, Dallahu obeying the Prophet And he says, "I apologize, Ya Uthman. and we apologize to your mother." Allah has sent down a verse commanding the Messenger of Allah and us to give you the key. And the Prophet Wasallam stood up and he said, "Take it, Ya Ibn Abi Talha, eternally, up to the day of resurrection, and it will—the key—will not be taken from you and your progeny unless by an unjust, oppressive tyrant." My brothers and sisters in Islam. Wallahi al-Azim, till today, as we speak now in Saudi Arabia, the key still remains in the possession of Banu Shaiba. It's Banu Shaiba, this man. Till today, even the king of Saudi cannot open the door without their permission. The key is with them, literally, to open the door. And this is the miracle of the Prophet ﷺ that Allah showed it. 1,400 years later, they have a family tree. You can't deny it. They have a family tree for every person in Saudi. It goes all the way back to Shaiba and the family lineage of this man, Uthman ibn Talha. From the words of the Prophet ﷺ. Isn't that a miracle, my brothers and sisters? Isn't that a miracle? Well, now it's time for Maghrib. So I'm going to stop here, Allah. a cliffhanger. The next thing the Prophet ﷺ did was he got up. To head towards Al-Ta'if for another battle. Next week insha'Allah we will continue the seerah. jazakumullah khair for listening. Wa sallallahu ala Muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi